The reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. If you've moved in Christian circles for long enough, the odds are that you will recognise that phrase. It's the first of the four spiritual laws, an evangelistic tract written by Bill Bright and published by Campus Crusade for Christ and used all over the world. Over the years, it's become something of a cliché. It's been probed and challenged and in some people's eyes found wanting. Paul Torcher's comments are perceptive. He says there's a problem which comes from the word wonderful and our understanding of it. Because no longer does wonderful mean full of wonder or full of awe. Now when we think of wonderful, we think of comfortable, free from pain, a life of ease. It's a picture of lying on the beach on a summer day and thinking, ah, this is wonderful. But what if God never promised a trouble-free life of ease and comfort? What if a life free of pain and suffering is not what he has in mind for us? What if the Bible teaches something different? Is it a bit too simple to say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, let's think about how the angel Gabriel addresses Mary. He tells her that she is highly favoured. She has been specifically chosen by God, and that news should bring joy to her heart, because she, she has the immense privilege of bearing God's son, the one who will sit on David's throne and who will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Prophecies centuries old are being fulfilled through her. And although she is a virgin, the power of the Most High will overshadow her and she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now these days, 
thanks to IVF, we can perhaps glimpse how conception might happen without intercourse. I nearly said conceivably without intercourse, but you know what I mean. Yet for a young girl to be the mother of God, that really does defy comprehension. What a calling. What a privilege. What a massive responsibility for a young, unmarried teenage girl. So could we paraphrase the angel's message to Mary in such a way that it boils down to the good news that Mary, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, maybe, after all, God does love her and yes, it is a wonderful plan. And over the centuries, Mary's become justly famous for her role and deeply revered in some Christian traditions. But was it a wonderful plan as far as Mary was concerned? Well, it was going to be pretty tough going actually. There was the problem of explaining to Joseph that she was pregnant, and though she hadn't slept with anybody else, it it was a miracle. There was the disapproval and censure she would have received from all her neighbours, even maybe from her own family, who would have assumed with complete justification that if she was pregnant, she must have slept with somebody before she was married. And in that culture, this was a major source of disgrace and could even result in capital punishment. Then there was the ordeal of having to travel to Bethlehem when she was heavily pregnant, the trauma of not being able to find any suitable accommodation where she could have her baby when they got there. And any illusion she might have had about a wonderful life would surely have been dispelled by the warning that Simeon gave her when she presented her baby boy in the temple, that a sword would pierce her heart. And as the years passed by without event, she must have wondered what to make of her memories of the extraordinary circumstances of her son's birth. All the time he was working as a carpenter, he just seemed so normal. But then he went to see John the Baptist, got baptised in the River Jordan. Everything changed. Her son disappeared for six weeks. And when he came back, there was something different about him. He started preaching, telling everyone that the kingdom of God had come. Out of nowhere, he had the power to heal people, to set people free from evil spirits. He consorted with some pretty dodgy characters and claimed he had the authority from God to forgive their sins. He was a bit of a party animal, eating and drinking with anyone who had a feast to share. His brothers thought he was off his head out of his mind. And Mary, well, she didn't know what to think. Whatever she had envisaged when she heard all the marvellous stories about the birth of a son, it was nothing like this. And then there was that awful moment when she stood outside the house with her other sons, waiting to take Jesus home, and he'd refused to come. (coughs) Worse than that, he had publicly disowned her telling everyone that as far as he was concerned, it was those who did the will of his father, who were his brothers and sisters and mother. That was twisting the knife. But nothing could have prepared her for the agony of seeing her son arrested and tortured and crucified. A wonderful plan for your life. Well, hardly. 
God's calling to Mary would be immensely costly, and whatever joy she found in doing God's will, and there will have been joy, it will have been matched by pain. And the easy option on hearing the angel's greeting would have been to say, well, thank you very much, but I'd rather you look for another virgin who you could enlist in your purposes. No thank you, rather it wouldn't be me. And I wonder whether the times when Mary had wished that's what she'd said. Admittedly, the angel does seem to take her compliance for granted. Mary, this is what is going to happen and God has chosen you. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't look like she has much choice in the matter. And yet none of this happens without her consent. I am the servant of the Lord, she says. So metaphorically, at least, she signs on the dotted line. And in doing so, she signs her life away. The King James translators translated the verse, I am the handmaid of the Lord. And if you've watched The Handmaid's Tale, you know that handmaid carries some pretty negative connotations of subservience and control. What she actually says is, I am the Lord's slave. I am the Lord's bond slave. As the New American Standard Version puts it. She puts herself, her life, her future, her body, entirely at God's disposal. That's an amazing act of commitment and dedication. Everything placed on the altar. And in that respect, she clearly merits our admiration, yet she also sets us an example to follow, because we, we are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, vessels through which he can fulfil his good and perfect and gracious will. We are called to pray the prayer that's found in the Methodist Covenant, I am no longer mine, but yours. Put me to what you will. I am the Lord's slave. I belong to him. I put myself under his authority. That was Mary's prayer. Notice it's God's authority, not anybody else's authority. We submit to God. How could she manage that? Well, partly, of course, she didn't know what lay ahead of her. Though she must have had a pretty shrewd idea that being pregnant was going to be difficult if she wasn't married to Joseph. But God does not require anything from us without enabling us to give it. So the greeting, highly favoured, can also mean one to whom great grace is given. Chosen, called, enabled by God's grace to fulfil the calling that God was giving her. And when the angel says to her, Mary, you found favour with God, that could equally be translated, you have received great grace from God. God's grace is his favour, his goodness, his generosity, his kindness towards us. In other words, God chose her and he didn't choose her to fail. Because God chose her and gave her what she would need to fulfil the high calling that he was giving her. And that's worth bearing in mind, because when God chooses us, when God calls us, when God commissions us, he gives us the grace and the resources we need to do his will. 
So God gave her an immensely high calling, but with that calling, he also gave the grace that she would need to see it through to the end, even though it would cost her immensely to do so. But that's how God works. So this young girl has her life turned upside down. Up until the angel appeared to her, she thought she knew what lay ahead of her, or what she hoped lay ahead of her. Marriage to a man who loved her and had a steady job as a carpenter. They would settle down, raise a family, by God's grace find happiness amidst all the hardship of living in first century Judea or Galilee. That was what her mother and her grandmother had done before her. Those were her expectations. And suddenly everything changes with the news. Mary, God loves you. And he's chosen you to fulfill the wonderful plan he has for saving the world. Always a bigger agenda than just giving us a good time, giving us a wonderful life, enabling us to enjoy the journey. We need to remember that. Becoming a Christian isn't the passport to success, the guarantee of an easy ride, the promise of prosperity and a wonderful life. It is a calling to serve the living God with everything we have and everything that we are in the biggest cause there is. That of spending and being spent in the service of God's kingdom, fulfilling his good and saving purposes for the world. And there will be times when that can be unimaginably hard But at the same time, because God is with us and his spirit is within us and his grace is there, it will equally be immensely rewarding and infinitely worthwhile. We only get one shot at life and God invites us, challenges us, calls us, summons us, chooses us to make the most of it by living it for him. If you want the easy life, give God a wide berth and ask him to leave you alone. But if you are prepared to let God take control of your life and do something extravagant and amazing with it, then he invites you to sign on the dotted line. I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's slave. Let it be to me according to your word. And what might God have chosen you for? What might his calling to you be? What might he ask you to do? Who knows? The task of bearing and raising his son was a one-off, ladies, so you are all off the hook as far as that is concerned. But we are all called to be Christ-bearers, to take his presence with us out into a needy world, And to do what we do in Jesus' name and for his sake. I am the Lord's servant. Whatever his calling is to you, whatever his gifts he's given you, whatever your role in life is, he calls us to do it for him, by his grace and for his glory. In that sense, we all, every single one of us, have a vocation that God calls 